Thank you for being so good to us, and, and now by your grace, would you uh, continue to be good to us in the hearing of your word, uh, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might convict our hearts of the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, and that you may fill us with great joy, uh, true joy, that only you can give. Uh, I know that many of us are going through a variety of things uh, that perhaps distract us from some of the main things, and, and we ask, God, that you would bring us close to you um, for our own good, and also that we might be used for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we rejoice in tells us what is within each of our hearts, whether you're cheering for your kids at the game, anticipating a trip, celebrating a race, feeling joy in the Lord. Uh, what we rejoice in tells us what is within each of our hearts. And you can't really fake that, or at least fake real joy all that well. It is one of the surest ways to know what is inside of us is to look at that which we unfeigningly rejoice in because what we celebrate is what we most value. And there's perhaps no other set of verses that I can think of in the Bible where the joy of heaven and the joy of God is so explicitly described as it is in this set of three parables of which we will cover two this morning which describe to us the joy of Jesus and the joy of heaven and lets us know if we are aligned with him or if we are not. And that's key because there is a group of religious people within these texts who are utterly not aligned with God, nor are they in tune with his heart at all and therefore are not happy at that which makes God happy, which makes this text serve as a litmus test for us as well. You know, Luke 15 is one of the better known texts of teaching that ever came out of Jesus' mouth. This is the chapter of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and which includes the parable of the prodigal son, which we will look at next Sunday for Easter Sunday. But all of it is showing to us this joy of heaven in finding that which is lost, and thus giving us a window into the heart of God himself, and describes at the same time those who have lost that very heart as well. But first, the context for these parables we read in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. If there is anything that the Pharisees and the scribes do get right, it is this. That Jesus does receive sinful people to himself. Now, this is the very heart of the gospel message. Jesus receives sinners. And it is that the most far gone people are sometimes the ones who end up closest to him. But here we find that the most ultra religious people of the day, they do not rejoice in what Jesus rejoices in. Instead, they bristle at it, uh, grumble against it, and murmur about it. And the scene is such that we find that the people who are deemed furthest away from God and least expected to come to know him, here they are now flocking to him. And look at the kinds of people. Tax collectors, uh, these are emblematic as the most hated type of people. Israel here is under Roman occupation, and so they're not a sovereign nation. They are under Gentile rule. And tax collectors were not Romans, but they were actually Jewish people who bought franchise rights to tax their own countrymen, their own moms and dads, brothers and sisters, and whatnot. They charge them, and they make a living off of collecting taxes on behalf of the enemy with surcharges for themselves on top of that. And so these tax collectors are known as the crooks and these sellouts who are thoroughly ungodly and unpatriotic. 
And so much of, of Israel's identity as a people of God had been wrapped up into being patriotic. For the nation, their identity had been as a people of God. We are awaiting God's deliverance of us which means that these tax collectors did not really believe in the promises of God as given in the scriptures, which provided hope for Israel. In fact, they were banking. They were banking on the chance that God would not bring any of these said promises in their lifetimes. For their careers were made up on the hope that God would not fulfill his word. I mean, think about that. I only make money because I don't think that this is gonna come true at all anytime soon. So I might as well tax my people. At least I can get ahead if the nation's not going to get ahead. I mean, this is the tax collector. Far from God, alienated from his people, traitor to them and traitor to him. The second term, sinners, in this text is not being used in the way that you and I might use the word sinners, a modern-day church, that everyone is one. That's why we need Jesus. No, sinners in this context is used to describe those ones, the extremely bad, the notoriously wicked, uh, questionable at best in character. These are the kinds of people it would be your nightmare if your kids grew up to become. These are the ones that most religious people in the first century would not be caught dead at the same dinner table with. We've seen these category in the Gospels uh, to describe prostitutes and the like. And yet it is that these very ones, tax collectors and sinners, they are now flocking to Jesus and Jesus is not turning them away at all. Now, this is especially noteworthy in light of Jesus' most recent teaching. He hasn't been all that seeker-sensitive in the past several chapters. Uh, his message hasn't been this easy Christianity. His demands are not for the lighthearted, nor does Jesus dull the edge of his words or remove the sharp corners of his teaching. I mean, if you just look at the previous two paragraphs, Jesus had just spoken about the cost of discipleship, that a true follower must hate his own mom, dad, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, hate even his own life. And if you can't do that, then you can't be my disciple. That was literally the last passage in Luke. Hate being this comparative idiom that Jesus must be so supreme that every other relationship is a far, far distant second. But he's really upfront. Do you really want to follow me? Am I who I say that I am? Right before that, Jesus teaches about this great banquet that he's throwing and how so many people have so many excuses on why they can't come. And he's angry. The host, Jesus, God, he's angry at the excuses. I mean, church growth consultants, they'll say, don't speak about the anger or the wrath of God if you want your church and your following to become bigger. Prior to that, Jesus speaks about this narrow gate that leads to life and how few are actually going to find it. Not many are going to be saved when all is said and done, which is the opposite message of so many then and the opposite of so many today. And not just in that era, but in every. Listen to J.C. Ryle over a century ago. According to the men of the world, few are going to hell. According to the Bible, few are going to heaven. I mean, you want to thin out the crowd. You want to make it hard for somebody to follow you? Preach these things. You, you want to make teaching difficult to swallow? This is how you do it. And so it's not like the tax collectors and the notorious sinners of the world are coming for free candy. But here they are actually flocking to Jesus because of his teaching. And the text is clear. Look at verse 1. That they are drawing near to hear him. They're here for that. They're not coming for the big Easter egg hunt 
or the miracles or the multiplied and free food. They are coming to hear the word of God from the Son of God, and they are coming because they somehow know that Jesus, rather than turn me away because of my previous lifestyle, he will receive me and preach to me and eat with me and spend quality time among people like us. I mean, this is exactly what he has come to do. But it is conversely that the most ultra-religious people of the day, they can't stand it. And they can't stand it so badly that they can't even keep quiet about it. But they murmur like Israel murmured and grumbled in the wilderness because of that generation's unbelief. We see the same action happening here in their unbelief. And why is that? Because they rejoice more in something else than they do in sinners coming to Jesus Christ. They rejoice more in a certain kind of recognition and distinction than they do in anything that Jesus is accomplishing here. The the reason why the Pharisees and the scribes love to wear these long robes and say these long prayers and have the best seats at all the social dinners is because they want everyone to ooh and to awe them at how holy and godly we are and how utterly unlike the riffraff we've become who are utterly beneath us. And this is why Jesus rubs them so much the wrong way. I mean, their accusation against Jesus is, why do you welcome those guys, tax collectors and sinners? They haven't done anything to earn it. They've done nothing holy, but precisely the opposite. They are not like us, and you don't seem to applaud us, Jesus. And in this life of religious self-exaltation, it does actually require a high class and a low class, a top and a bottom, for the bottom exists to make these ones feel better about themselves. I mean, this is human nature. I mean, this is why gossip is so prevalent. Uh, Did you know that they this and they that, and I would never, blah, 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 blah. This is self-exaltation by stepping on somebody else. They actually prefer that the tax collector remain the tax collector and the sinner remain far, far from God and from themselves. Why? Because it makes me look better by comparison. This is why we have prayers like what we find in Luke 18 where a Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And that's a prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Their joy is not in bringing the far from God to God. Their joy is in their pride that I am so glad I am not like all of you. The Pharisees and the scribes, they want the elect and the saved and the chosen to be these select elite ones that look like us and appreciate the things we do so we can pat each other on the backs, stroke each other's egos in a spiritual, religious country club of sorts. And it is this kind of joy which is revealing exactly what is within their hearts. And it's that kind of joy that comes into collision with the joy of heaven and the joy of God in all that Jesus has come to do. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, they do get one thing right. Jesus does receive the sinful to himself. It's just that they can't stand it. And this is a setting that sets up this trio of parables by which Jesus justifies why he spends so much time with the sinful. Let's look at the first one in verse 3, and we read there. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep? If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Here we have Jesus himself envisioned as a shepherd who seeks and saves the lost and not begrudgingly, not because he has to, but because he wants to. And it is such that his great joy as a shepherd is to find even one single wandering sheep, even when he has 99 others who haven't. He leaves them all to find the one, and he carries that one all the way home. And what manner is he doing that? Rejoicing all the way, not muttering under his breath at how often the stinking sheep seems to wander off. And this rejoicing is not just and only on the way home, but when he does get home, this good shepherd wants everyone else to share in the same joy that he has within his own heart. This is a portrait of what happens in our salvation, brothers and sisters. You know, so often it is that when we look back upon our lives prior to the faith, it's not as if we had this volitional moment of cursing God and storming away with his clear intention of severing us from him and him from us. But so often it is that we're just looking for something else, a better patch of grass, a sweeter bite to eat, a shadier and a more pleasant place to lay our heads. And little by little, often in small steps, rather than these giant leaps, we depart further and further from our maker and our Lord, perhaps without even knowing it. It doesn't always feel like rebellion, rebellion. But most of the time, we just follow our appetites until we're in dangerous places, spiritually speaking. And this is not the only place where we are pictured as sheep. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And each of us is lost and lost to God wandering seemingly endlessly helpless and hopeless even if we don't feel it and understand the state of our own condition. But this great shepherd knows our predicament and how dangerous it truly is. I mean, a poor wandering animal like a single sheep could easily fall prey to beasts, slip off a cliff, spiral into a cave, break a limb, etc., etc. The great shepherd knows our predicament and he doesn't yell, I'm way over here at this point where you left me. You better make your way back to me. Or you know what, I'll come this far, but you better come that far if you want to be part of my flock. I mean, look at the 99 who are still here. What's wrong with you? Actually, I do have 99. Why am I wasting my time yelling for you? No, the great shepherd leaves the 99 because that single wandering soul in danger is the very focus of all of his undivided attention. And when he does find that wandering soul, he doesn't merely lead it back into the fold. He doesn't say, follow me, just walk in my footsteps. That's how you get home. Or you know what? I want us out, three-legged race. Strap one of your legs, one of mine. You do your part, I do my part. No, he lifts this poor creature onto his very back, close to his neck and his person, and he bears all the weight of its wandering upon his very own shoulders as if the burden is entirely his own. And isn't it true that our shepherd left the heights of heaven and the glory he shared within the Trinity to be born into a manger to seek after us? 
to be tempted as mere creation, although creator as he is, to face every kind of thing we have ever faced, and yet he remains sinless and righteous, and sinless and righteous not to exalt himself. Look at me, I could do what you didn't do. No, but sinless and righteous so that he might be the perfect offering to die in the sinner's place and to die as sin itself in the most humble act of love that has ever existed. Jesus Christ has to literally do all of it. Isaiah 53, 6 again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, why are any of us saved? Because I, because I, because I? No, brothers and sisters, because Jesus Christ himself has sought you out while you were out there wandering. And he took a hold of you and carried you upon his own shoulders back through all the ravines and backward areas that you have lost yourselves in. There is no synergism here. It's only monergism. There's no team effort in salvation. Only singular, sovereign grace. And so this is a portrait of what happens in the salvation of every single soul. But the main part of this parable is not only the action, but the main part of this parable is the utter joy that our Savior has. Hebrews 12, 2, it says there, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. You know, I don't know if you've ever lost anything. Your phone, your wallet, your keys, your dog, your child at Costco. And the joy is proportionate to the value the thing has to you and how much it seemed that you may never get it back. Why is it so joyful for tax collectors and sinners, the most lost ones, to be flocking to Jesus to hear his word? Because they are valuable to him. And it seemed to most that these are the very ones who would never, ever come to him. These are the far gone. And why is it of no joy for the 99 who need no repentance? Because these 99 never thought of themselves as really all that lost. And therefore, they could never be found. And it is that we ourselves, if, if it is that we ourselves have never thought of ourselves as being lost and far gone and wandering away and in danger, we will therefore never understand the joy of being found. And then we will never derive deep joy at the prospect of others being found. If we take no joy in our own salvation, we will definitely not take joy in others, nor will we partner in time, effort, money, blood, sweat, and tears in seeking and saving that which is lost. These Pharisees and scribes, they don't view God as carrying them far from the fold and back into safety because they don't even view themselves as being lost at all. God didn't have to carry me because I never wandered away ever. And their own pride prevents them from ever finding joy in what gives to God his joy. And therefore, their joy is more all up in this and their lack of joy in that is such. And so in this parable, Jesus is showing to us his heart for the wandering soul who has lost his or her way by spelling out exactly what he finds great joy in, which is bringing them close to himself. Now, to underline and to make it bold and italicize the same point, Jesus combines this parable with another one to reiterate the value of each soul to him. And we read in verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? 
And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And just as Jesus had pictured himself as a kind shepherd who looks for the wandering and carries that even singular sheep upon his own shoulders back into the fold, here Jesus pictures himself as a poor woman where a single coin means the world to him. Because of the value of a single soul to him, he will sweep the entire place to find just the one and rejoice and celebrate when that one is found. Now, to the hearers of this parable, this woman losing one coin is not this earth-shattering loss. This coin is probably worth a laborer's day wage. This is not a lot of money. And this woman likely would have come from a family whose dowry was a measly 10 coins. And so not only is this woman poor, but she comes from a family who is also very poor. And that is not to say that God is poor, but it is to say that this poor woman would search with all her might to find something that a lot of other people wouldn't think is worth the effort. She does think this one coin is very much worth all of her effort. And with close to 8 billion, I think now, human souls currently on earth, we can often, in our minds, lose the value of just one of them. But our Lord and our Savior, he does not. You know, brothers and sisters, these two parables are ultimately not about sheep and coins. These parables are about wandering people, singular souls lost, who are worth everything to our Lord, even if others cannot ascertain their worth. And we understand more and more the worth of just one when we look at the amount of celebration these twin parables display when the lost is found. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm reading this right, but throwing a party, a banquet for one lost sheep, I mean, don't you have to feed everyone and host everyone? Isn't, it, isn't that gonna cost you a lot more than the street value of one sheep? This poor woman who's calling together her friends, and not just her friends, but her neighbors for one lost coin worth one day's wages, isn't that going to cost you a lot more than what that coin is worth? But isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that the cost to our God to celebrate and seek and find us and to bring us back to him, isn't it true that the life of Jesus Christ and the death of him is worth more than $8 billion, is worth more than $100 trillion? is worth more than multiple worlds and thousands of universes. The one who created it all with his very voice is worth more, more than all of creation for all time. And yet it is that the gospel is such that Jesus Christ willingly pays it all with his own life and he is getting ripped off, so to speak. And yet what does he visualize his response to be? This joyful party in heaven with all the angels of God not over a million souls, but just over your soul. Do you understand how much it is that God loves you, believer? I don't know that we can ever begin to even scratch the surface of it, of how much it is that God loves us in Jesus Christ. I think that's why heaven has to last in eternity to explore all of that. You know, you can trust him even when things in your life don't seem to make sense. And when those sins begin to tempt you to distrust his love for you, if we could just understand a fraction of his love for us, I think we can endure a lot more than we do in faith in the one who gave us all for just the one. 
but I want you to notice the expression of this reception of searching love and amazing grace. Two times Jesus says that there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, verse seven. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, verse 10. And here we have the importance of repentance. To repentance means to turn, to change your mind away from how you used to live, whether it's wretched sin or socially acceptable and clean religious pride. It means to change. A life has to actually change. And repentance is not optional. And repentance is also not meritorious or in any way earning of salvation. And, and perhaps an example would help. This is an example of a repentance tax collector uh, that we will meet later in Luke 19. Zacchaeus, tax collector. I don't know if you kids remember the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and not just any tax collector, but a chief tax collector, which makes him the worst of the worst. Sold out his people for money, banked on God's word, not coming to fruition. He is the crook of crooks. And Jesus says to him, how does the song go? Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And Jesus goes to be with him. And what does Zacchaeus do? He says, half my goods I give to the poor, half. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You know what that means? I upcharge you a G, I'm gonna give you four Gs to make it right. I used to live for more and more money. I can give it away now. This is called repentance. A man who sold everyone and everything out for cash, that cash no longer has any hold on him, nor does he live for it anymore. You can have it all. That's not my life anymore. I've changed. I've turned. And Jesus says at the end of that passage, today salvation has come to his house. And he ends, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, is that repentance what earned Zacchaeus salvation? No. It's merely evidence. It's the proof that Jesus had grabbed this wandering one looking for a sweeter patch of grass and money. He had sought that lost coin all behind the couch and dirtied in the dust. Zacchaeus is, and ours, repentance doesn't earn salvation it is the proof that salvation has arrived. It proves that we have been found. There's no one saved whose life is not changed. There's no salvation that is without proof, which is in repentance. And at this point, the question we have to ask ourselves very honestly, and perhaps not too quickly, is have I been found by Jesus Christ, or have I not? And have I repented like this? You know, wandering sheep and lost coins, they, they seem to represent that which is without guilt as a focus, which is true, but, but repentance two times in these parables it, it is the admission of that guilt and the desire and heart change for a life that is utterly different than what I used to live for. Does this tax collector, the worst of the worst, with a new and transformed life, give to you joy? And as you think about your own testimony, new and transformed life, does it give to you joy? the joy of salvation? What about the thought of others coming to know Jesus? Is that what gives to you happiness? Is that what you daydream of? The people you know that don't know him, longing for the day that they might come to know him, is that what you daydream of? Because what we rejoice in most gives us a window into our hearts. And this text, again, is a litmus test for us to see if we are in tune with the heart of God or if we are not. You know, I was reading R.C. Sproul on this text, 
And he makes this parallel and he says this, generally speaking, a dog owner will search high and low for his pet if he finds that his animal is missing. He might walk through his neighborhood yelling out the name of his dog in hopes that it will come running. This happened to us several times with our dogs. The local animal control center may receive several visits a day from his owner, maybe several phone calls, hoping to find that the dog has been picked up and brought to it. Normally, he would plaster telephone poles on the local streets with flyers and pictures promising a reward for the animal's return. He may even start knocking door to door, asking his neighbors if they had seen his pet. While dogs are a good gift from the Lord, it is indeed sad that too many followers of Christ are more concerned to find lost pets than they are to find lost people. We easily grow complacent about our participation in the mission Jesus has given to us. The task of world evangelization is so large that we often ignore it without necessarily bearing a malicious intent. Most of us probably overlook the desperate needs found even in our own communities. Is this us, brothers and sisters? Have we lost it? People lose it all the time. Look at the religious folks in our text today. They lost it, and they didn't even know they lost it. And we must be sure that we won't lose it. Would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you, God, that you are a God who seeks and saves the lost, that you are, it's true, whether your enemies say it or we say it, Jesus Christ receives sinners. And I pray, Lord, that this would be the apple of our eye, that this would be our highest joy, that outside of our own salvation, we would seek the salvation of others. Father, it's hard. Um, it's not like we see conversions every day. And so it is easy to get distracted. And we've tried and tried with so many people in our families and our communities, and, and it's, it's easy to feel fatigue and just to look for a greener patch of grass. I pray, Lord, that you would sustain us by your love, that you would give to us your joy, that even when things don't seem to be going our way, we would trust in you because we know how much it is that you loved us and love us and spare no expense to find us. We pray, God, more and more that our church family would live for your glory and the salvation of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.